Chapter 15 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 15, Little Rock, Expeditions to Augusta and Springfield, March, April, and May, 1864. In the spring of 1864, it was determined by the military authorities to undertake some offensive operations in what was styled the Red River Country, the objective point being Shreveport, Louisiana. General N. P. Banks was to move with an army from New Orleans, and General Steele, in command of the Department of Arkansas, was to cooperate with a force from Little Rock. And here my regiment sustained what I regarded, and still regard, as a piece of bad luck. It was not included in this moving column, but was assigned to the duty of serving as provost guard of the city of Little Rock, during the absence of the main army. To be left there in that capacity, while the bulk of the troops in that department would be marching and fighting, was, from my standpoint, a most mortifying circumstance. But the duty that devolved on us had to be done by somebody, and soldiers can only obey orders. Our officers said at the time that the only efficient and well-disciplined troops were entrusted with the position of provost guards of a city the size of Little Rock and hence that our being so designated was a compliment to the regiment. That sounded plausible, and it may have been true. Probably was, but I didn't like the job a bit. It may, however, have been all for the best, as this Red River expedition, especially the part undertaken by General Banks, was a disastrous failure. General Steele left Little Rock about March 23rd with a force of all arms of about 12,000 men, but got no further than Camden, Arkansas. General Banks was defeated by the Confederates at the Battle of Sabine Crossroads in Louisiana on April 8th and was forced to retreat. The enemy then was at liberty to concentrate on General Steele, and so he likewise was under the necessity of retreating and scuttling back to Little Rock just as rapidly as possible. But on this retreat he and his men did some good hard fighting and stood off the Confederates effectively. About the first intimation we in Little Rock had that our fellows were coming back was when nearly every soldier in the city that was able to wield a mattock or a spade was detailed for fatigue duty and set to work throwing up breastworks and kept at it both day and night. I happened to see General Steele when he rode into town on May 2nd at the head of his troops, and he looked tough. He had on a battered felt hat with a drooping brim, an oilcloth slicker, much the worse for wear. The ends of his pantaloons were stuck in his boots, and he was just splashed and splattered with mud from head to foot. But he sat firm and erect in his saddle. He was a magnificent horseman and his eyes were flashing as if he had plenty of fight left in him yet. And the rank and file of our retreating army was just the hardest-looking outfit of Federal soldiers that I saw during the war at any time. 
the most of them looked as if they had been rolled in the mud. Numbers of them were barefoot, and I also saw several of them with the legs of their trousers all gone, high up, socking through the mud like big blue cranes. In view of the feverish haste with which Little Rock had been put in a state for defensive operations, and considering also all reports in circulation, we fully expected that Price's whole army would make an attack on us almost any day. But the Confederates had been so roughly handled in the Battle of Jenkins Ferry, April 30th, on the Saline River, that none of their infantry came east of that river, nor any of their cavalry except a small body, which soon retired. The whole Confederate army about May 1st fell back to Camden, and soon all again was quiet along the Arkansas. I will now go back about two weeks in order to give an account of a little expedition our regiment took part in when General Steele's army was at Camden. Late on the evening of April 19th, we fell in, marched to the railroad depot, climbed on the cars, and were taken that night to Duvall's Bluff. Next morning, we embarked on the steamboat James Raymond and started up White River. The other troops that took part in the movement were the 3rd Minnesota Infantry and a detachment of the 8th Missouri Cavalry. We arrived at the town of Augusta, about 80 miles by water from Duvall's Bluff, on the morning of the 21st. It was a little, old, dilapidated river town, largely in a deserted condition, situated on low bottomland on the east bank of White River. On arriving, we at once debarked from the boat, and all our little force marched out a mile or so east of the town, where we halted and formed in line of battle in the edge of the woods, with a large open field in our front, on the other side of which were tall, dense woods. As there were no signs or indications of any enemy in the town, and everything around was so quiet and sleepy, I couldn't understand what these ominous preparations meant. Happening to notice the old chaplain a short distance in the rear of our company, I slipped out of ranks and walked back to him for the purpose of getting a pointer, if possible. He was by himself, and as I approached him seemed to be looking rather serious. He probably saw inquiry in my eyes, and without waiting for question, made a gesture with his hands toward the woods in our front, and said, O oh, son of Jeremiah, here is where we shall give battle to those who trouble Israel. What? What is that you say? said I in much astonishment. It is even so, he continued. The Philistines are abroad in the land, having among them, as they assert, many valiant men who can sling stones at a hair's breadth and not miss. They await us even now in the forest beyond. But, son of Jeremiah, said he, if the uncircumcised heathen should assail the Lord's anointed, be strong and quit yourself like a man. All right, chaplain, I responded. I have forty rounds in the box and forty on the person, and will give them the best I have in the shop. But say, take care of my watch, will you? And should anything happen, please send it to the folks at home. And handing him my little old silver timepiece, I resumed my place in the ranks. After what seemed to me a most tiresome wait, we finally advanced, preceded by a line of skirmishers. I kept my eyes fixed on the woods in our front, expecting every minute to see burst therefrom puffs of white smoke, followed by the whiz of bullets and the crash of musketry. 
but nothing of the kind happened. Our skirmishers entered the forest and disappeared, and still everything remained quiet. The main line followed, and after gaining the woods, we discovered plenty of evidence that they had, quite recently, been occupied by a body of cavalry. The ground was cut up by horses' tracks, and little piles of corn in the ear, only partly eaten, were scattered around. We advanced through the woods and swamps for some miles and scouted around considerably, but found no enemy, except a few stragglers that were picked up by our cavalry. We left Augusta on the 24th on our steamboat and arrived at Little Rock on the same day. I met the chaplain on the boat while on our return and remarked to him that those mighty men who could kill a jaybird with a slingshot a quarter of a mile off didn't stay to see the show. No, he answered, when the sons of Belial beheld our warlike preparation, their hearts melted and became as water. They gat every man upon his ass and speedily fled, even beyond the brook which is called Cash. He then went on to tell me that on our arrival at Augusta, there was a body of Confederate cavalry near there, supposed to be about a thousand strong, under the command of a General McRae, that they were bivouacked in the woods in front of the line of battle we formed, and that on our approach they had scattered and fled. The enemy's force really exceeded ours, but as a general proposition, their cavalry was reluctant to attack our infantry in a broken country unless they could accomplish something in the nature of a surprise or otherwise have a decided advantage at the start. On May 16th, we shifted our camp to Huntersville, on the left bank of the Arkansas River, and near our first location. We thus abandoned our log cabins and never occupied them again. They were now getting too close and warm for comfort anyhow, but they had been mighty good friends to us in the bitterly cold winter of 63-64, and during that time we spent many a cozy, happy day and night therein. On May 19th we again received marching orders, and the regiment left camp that night on the cars and went to Hicks Station, 28 miles from Little Rock. We remained here, bivouacking in the woods, until the 22nd, when, at 3 o'clock in the morning of that day, we took up the line of march, moving in a northerly direction. The troops that composed our force consisted of the 61st, 54th, and 106th Illinois and 12th Michigan Infantry Regiments, a battery of artillery, and some detachments of cavalry, Brigadier General J. R. West in command. We arrived at the town of Austin, 18 miles from Hicks Station, about 2 o'clock on the afternoon of the 22nd. It was a little country village, situated on a rocky, somewhat elevated ridge. As I understand, it is now a station on the Iron Mountain Railroad, which has been built since the war. I reckon if in May 1864 anyone had predicted that some day a railroad would be built and in operation through that insignificant settlement among the rocks and trees, he would have been looked on as hardly a safe person to be allowed to run at large. Company D started on the march with only one commissioned officer, 2nd Lieutenant Wallace. I have forgotten the cause of the absence of Captain Keeley and Lieutenant Warren, but there was doubtless some good reason. 
On the first day's march the weather was hot, and the route was through a very rough and broken country. Wallace was overcome by heat and had to fall out and wait for an ambulance. In consequence, it so happened that when we reached Austin, there was no commissioned officer with us, and I, as first sergeant, was in command of the company. And that gave rise to an incident which at the time swelled me up immensely. On arriving at the town, the regiment halted on some open ground in the outskirts, fell into line, dressed on the colors, and stood at ordered arms. Thereupon the adjutant commanded, commanding officers of companies to the front and center, march. I was completely taken by surprise by this command, and for a second or two stood dazed and uncertain. But two or three of the boys spoke up at once and said, "'You're our commanding officer, Stillwell. Go!' The situation by this time had also dawned on me, so I promptly obeyed the command. But I must have been a strange-looking commanding officer. I was barefooted, breeches rolled up nearly to the knees, feet and ankles scratched and tanned, and my face covered with sweat and dirt. The closest scrutiny would have failed to detect in me a single feature of the supposed pomp and circumstance of an alleged military hero. But I stalked down the line, bare feet and all, with my musket at a shoulder arms, and looking fully as proud, I imagine, as Henry of Navarre ever did at the Battle of Ivry, with a snow-white plume upon his gallant crest. By the proper and usual commands, the commanding officers of companies were brought up and halted within a few paces of Colonel Orr, who thereupon addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, have your men stack arms where they now are, and at once prepare their dinner. They can disperse to get wood and water, but caution them strictly not to wander far from the gun stacks. We may possibly pass the night here, but we may be called on at any moment to fall in and resume the march. That's all, gentlemen. While the colonel was giving these instructions, I thought a sort of unusual twinkle sparkled in his eyes as they rested on me, but for my part I was never more serious in my life. Returning to the company, I gave the order to stack arms, which being done, the boys crowded around me, plying me with questions. What did the colonel say? What's up, Stillwell? I assumed a prodigiously fierce and authoritative look and said, Say, do you fellows suppose that we commanding officers of companies are going to give away to a lot of lousy privates a confidential communication from the colonel? If you are guilty of any more such impertinent conduct, I'll have every mother's son of you bucked and gagged. The boys all laughed, and after a little more fun of that kind, I repeated to them literally every word the colonel said, and then we all set about getting dinner. About this time, Lieutenant Wallace rode up in an ambulance, and my reign was over. We resumed the march at three o'clock in the morning of the next day, May 23rd, and marched 18 miles and bivouacked that night at Peach Orchard Gap. This was no town, simply a natural feature of the country. Left here next morning, the 24th, at daylight, marched 18 miles and bivouacked on a stream called Little Cadron. Left at daylight next morning, the 25th, marched 18 miles and went into camp near the town of Springfield. By this time, the intelligence had filtered down to the common soldiers 
as to the object of this expedition. It was to intercept and give battle to a force of Confederate cavalry under General J. O. Shelby, operating somewhere in this region, and supposed to have threatening designs on the Little Rock and Duval's Bluff Railroad. But so far as encountering the Confederates was concerned, the movement was an entire failure. My experience during the war warrants the assertion, I think, that it is no use to send infantry after cavalry. It is very much like a man on foot trying to run down a jackrabbit. It may be that infantry can sometimes head off cavalry and thereby frustrate an intended movement, but men on horses can't be maneuvered into fighting men on foot unless the horsemen are willing to engage. Otherwise, they will just keep out of the way. We remained at Springfield until May 28th. It was a little place, and its population, when the war began, was probably not more than a hundred and fifty or two hundred. It was the county seat of Conway County, but there was no official business being transacted there now. About all the people had left, except a few old men and some women and small children. The houses were nearly all log cabins. Even the county jail was a log structure of a very simple and unimposing type. It has always been my opinion that this little place was the most interesting and romantic-looking spot, with one possible exception I may speak of later, that I saw in the South during all my Army service. The town was situated on rather high ground and in the heart of the primitive forest. Grand native trees were growing in the dooryards and even in the middle of the main street and all around everywhere and we were there at a season of the year when nature was at its best, and all the scenery was most attractive and charming. I sometimes would sit down at the foot of some big tree in the center of the little village and ponder on what surely must have been the happy, contented condition of its people before the war came along and spoiled all. Judging from the looks of the houses, the occupants doubtless had been poor people and practically all on the same financial footing, so there was no occasion for envy, and there was no railroad, nor telegraph line, nor daily papers to keep them nervous and excited or cause them to worry, and they were far away from the busy haunts of congregated men. Their best companions, innocence and health, and their best riches, ignorance of wealth. Their trading point was Lewisburg, about 15 miles southwest on the Arkansas River, and when that stream was at a proper stage, small steamboats would ply up and down and bring to Lewisburg groceries and dry goods and such other things as the country did not produce, which would then be wagoned out to Springfield and into the country generally. And judging from all that could be seen or heard, I think that there were hardly any slaves at Springfield or in the entire north part of Conway County before the war. What few there may have been were limited to the plantations along the Arkansas River. I have never been at the little town since the occasion now mentioned, so personally I know nothing of its present appearance and condition. However, as a matter of general information, it may be said that after the war a railroad was built running up the Arkansas River Valley through the south part of the county. This road left Springfield out so in course of time it lost the county seat, which went to a railroad town. And this road also missed Lewisburg, which has now disappeared from the map entirely.
When in camp at Springfield, many of the boys, in accordance with their usual habits, of their own motion at once went to scouting around over the adjacent country after pigs or chickens or anything else that would serve to vary army fare. While so engaged, two or three of our fellows discovered a little old whiskey still. It was about two miles from Springfield, situated in a deep timbered hollow near a big spring. It was fully equipped for active operation, with a supply of mash on hands and all other essentials for turning out whiskey. Some of the 10th Illinois Cavalry found it first and scared away the proprietor, then took charge of the still and proceeded to carry on the business on their own account. The boys of the 61st who stumbled on the place were too few to cope with the cavalrymen. Thereupon they hastened back to camp and informed some trusty comrades of the delectable discovery. Forthwith they organized a strong party as an alleged provost guard, and all armed and under the command of a daring, reckless duty sergeant hastened to the still. On arriving there in their capacity as provost guards, they summarily arrested the cavalrymen with loud threats of condign punishment, but after scaring them sufficiently, and on their solemn promise to at once return to camp and be good in the future, released them and allowed them to depart. Then our bunch stacked arms and started in to make whiskey. Some of the number had served in the business before and knew all about it, so that little still there in the hollow was then and there worked to its utmost capacity day and night and doubtless as it never had been before. Knowledge of this enterprise spread like wildfire among the enlisted men, and, oh, how the whiskey went down at Springfield. Away along some hours after midnight, I would hear some of the boys coming in from the still, letting out keen, piercing whoops that could be heard nearly a mile, like the festive tam o'shanter, with apologies to Burns, the swats say reamed in every noddle they cared na rebs nor guards a bottle. I took just one little taste of the stuff from Sam Ralston's canteen. It was limpid and colorless as water and fairly burnt like fire as it went down my throat. That satisfied my curiosity, and after that many similar offers were declined with thanks. Whether the officers at the time knew of this business or not, I do not know. If they did, they just winked the other eye and said nothing, for the boys ran the still without restriction or interruption until we left Springfield. Telling of the foregoing episode causes many other incidents to come flocking to my memory that came under my notice during my Army career, and in which whiskey figured more or less. The insatiable, inordinate appetite of some of the men for intoxicating liquor of any kind was something remarkable, and the ingenious schemes they would devise to get it were worthy of admiration, had they been exerted in a better cause. And they were not a bit fastidious about the kind of liquor, it was the effect that was desired. One afternoon, a day or two after we arrived at Helena, Arkansas, a sudden yell, a sort of kiyip, was heard issuing from one of the company tents, soon followed by others of the same tone. I had heard that peculiar yelp before and knew what it meant. Presently I sauntered down to the tent from whence the sounds issued and walked in. Several of the boys were seated around in an exalted state of vociferous hilarity, and a flat pint bottle with the figure of a green leaf on one side, 
and labeled Bay Rum on the other, was promptly handed to me, with the invitation to drink hearty. I did taste it. It was oily, greasy, and unpleasant, but there was no doubt that it was intoxicating. It was nothing but Bay Rum, the same stuff that in those days barbers were wont to use in their line of business. It finally came to light that the sutler of some regiment at Helena had induced the post-quartermaster at Cairo to believe that the troops stood in urgent need of bay rum for the purpose of anointing their hair, and thereupon he obtained permission to include several boxes of the stuff in his sutler's supplies. When he got it to Helena, he proceeded to sell it at a dollar a bottle, and his stock was exhausted in a few hours. What may have been done to this sutler I don't know, but that was the last and only time that I know of bay rum being sold to the soldiers as a toilet article or otherwise. Of course, all sutlers and civilians were prohibited under severe penalties from selling intoxicating liquor to the enlisted men, but the profits were so large that the temptation was great to occasionally transgress in some fashion, but as a general rule I think that the orders were scrupulously obeyed. The risk was too great to do otherwise. I remember a little personal experience of my own when once I tried to buy a drink of whiskey. It is not a long story, so it will be told. It occurred at Duval's Bluff in October 1863, when our little furlough party was there, awaiting the arrival of a boat from below on which to resume our homeward journey. One night in particular was quite cold. We slept in our blankets on the ground near the bank of the river, built good fires, and tried to keep as comfortable as possible. But the morning after this cold night, I got up feeling wretched, both mentally and physically. I was weak from previous illness, my rheumatic pains were worse, and my condition in general was such as caused me to fear that I was liable to break down and not be able to go home. It occurred to me that a drink of whiskey might brace me up some, so I started out to obtain one if possible. There was a sort of wharf boat at the landing, moored to the bank, a stationary, permanent affair with a saloon appurtenant. I went on the boat, walked up to the bar, and, exhibiting a greenback to the barkeeper, asked him if he would sell me a drink of whiskey. "'Can't do it,' he answered. "'The orders are strict against selling whiskey to soldiers.' I began moving away, and at that instant a big, greasy, colored deckhand or laborer of some sort black as the ace of spades, crowded by me, brushing against me in the narrow passage on his way to the bar. Boss, he called to the keeper, want a dram. A bottle and a glass were pushed toward him. He filled the glass to the brim and drank the contents at a gulp. Then he smacked his big lips, rolled his eyes around, and with a deep breath exclaimed, Ah, dat whiskey feels des powerful good dis cold morning. I looked at the darky in bitterness of heart and couldn't help thinking that it was all fired mean when a poor little sick soldier was not allowed to buy a drink of whiskey while a great big buck nigger roustabout had it handed out to him with cheerfulness and alacrity. But the orders forbidding the sale of intoxicating liquors to soldiers were all right and an imperative military necessity. If the men had been allowed unlimited access to whiskey and the like, that would, in my opinion, simply have been ruinous to the good order, discipline, and efficiency of the army. 
That statement is based on events I saw myself while in the service, and which occurred when, in spite of the orders, the men managed to obtain liquor without let or hindrance. The scenes that would then ensue are too unpleasant to talk about, so they will be passed over in silence. It is only fair, however, to say that the same men who, when furiously drunk, were a disgrace to themselves and the organization to which they belonged, were, as a general rule, faithful and brave soldiers when sober. At four o'clock on the morning of the 28th, we broke camp at Springfield and started back to Little Rock, marching in a southeasterly direction. We marched all that day, the 29th, 30th, and 31st, and arrived at our old camp at Huntersville at nine o'clock in the evening of the last mentioned day. According to the official report, the entire distance marched on the expedition, going and coming, was 190 miles and we didn't see an armed confederate on the whole trip. Our return route was through the wilderness, most of it primeval forest, and we didn't pass through a single town. But now there is a railroad that runs practically over all the course we followed during the last three days we were on this march. I haven't been in that region since we passed through there in May 1864, but at that time it certainly was a very wild rough and broken country. We here had our first experience with scorpions and tarantulas, and soon learned that it was prudent when bivouacking on the ground to carefully turn over all loose rocks and logs in order to find and get rid of those ugly customers. The scorpions were about four or five inches long, the forepart of the body something like a crawfish, with a sharp stinger on the end of the tail. When excited or disturbed, they would curl their tails over their backs and get over the ground quite rapidly. The tarantulas were just big hairy spiders of a blackish-gray color, about as big as toads and mighty ugly-looking things. The sting of the tarantula and the bite of a spider were very painful, but when that happened to any of us, which was seldom, our remedy was to apply a big fresh quid of tobacco to the wound, which would promptly neutralize the poison. End of chapter 15